Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Touching the Past with your host, Trisha Markle. My name's Trisha Markle and welcome to Touch the Past, a program where we explore the rich heritage of Huntsville and area its past and not so distant past. Communication can take many forms, from non-verbal as in facial expressions, hand gestures or body language, spoken word, the written word as well as other forms. Communication can also be thought of in other ways, newspapers, telegraph, telephone and email. Today, I'll be looking at the story of communication in Huntsville and area. But first, a little background. Ancient man was forced to be creative with his communication, the first being the human voice. Cave paintings that evolved into pictograms, images that could represent a simple place or object, and later to a visual communication that could express entire ideas. About 3200 BC, writing was invented in Iraq and Egypt. Around 1500 BC, China produced the written word, and it's also around that time the ancient Mayans discovered a system of writing. The invention of the alphabet originated in what is now Lebanon and Israel. Writing was done on papyrus or parchment until the Chinese developed paper around 200 BC. The knowledge was passed on to the Arabs, and in the Middle Ages, papermaking reached Europe. For the most part, communication was the spoken word, and only a few people wrote things down. But in the 1300s in China, during the Sheng and Chen dynasty, the printing press was invented, removing the need to handwrite all paper messages. 150 years later, Johannes Gutenberg created a modernized version of the printing press that was able to mass-produce written works. This began the period known as the Printing Revolution. Soon presses appeared throughout the cities of Europe, Printing allowed information to be disseminated among the person, people, though, although there were still only a certain group of those able to read or write. Monarchs set up messenger systems to carry their messages, and in 1635, Charles I of England allowed private citizens to use it for a fee. So this became the birth of the postal system, and written information could be passed directly from person to person. Huntsville's first post office was established by Captain George Hunt in his home. He'd been authorized to begin a twice-weekly mail service starting January 1st, 1870. The post office moved around town as subsequent postmasters took over. In 1901, following the devastating fire of 1894, the new Bettis block was built and the then postmaster Floyd Clearwater moved the post office there. In March of 1914, the town received word from the government that a new post office would be built in Huntsville. World War I broke out later that year, and the plan was cancelled. Due to his unpopular political affiliations, Mr. Clearwater was replaced by Mr. Mayhew as postmaster. He moved the post office to his own building in 1920. After 29 years, Mr. Mayhew retired as postmaster and passed the office over to Mr. Sid Davis. Mr. Davis was a popular man in town, being involved with the Parks Commission, was for a time member of council, and was active with local sports teams. He also kept detailed notes on his role as postmaster. 
His daughter, Jean Reynolds, gave me a handwritten note of his, where he described his duties. The fact that there were two mail trains from the south and two from the north daily. The train numbers and arrival times, and that Gord Middleton was contracted to pick up and deliver mailbags to the post office. Sid was quite proud of the fact he acquired a cancelling machine, an adding machine for the office, which saved many hours' labour. During his time in office, 1942 to 1961, he notes that not only was the post office responsible for mail, but also handled post office savings bank, war savings stamps, war savings certificates, government annuities, radio licenses, and even the Eaton's and Simpson's catalogues. After many years and many requests, Huntsville did get a new post office in 1955. Other than news being brought to town in person or by mail, the first other real communication came through telegraph. The first telegraph message transmitted in Canada was on December the 19th, 1846, by the Toronto, Hamilton, Niagara and St. Catharines Electromagnetic Telegraph Company. This was Canada's first telecommunications industry that was crucial to the development of the country. The technology began in 1837 by Samuel Morse, who developed a means of transmitting encoded messages electrically in the form of dots and dashes. Telegraph lines generally ran next to rail lines, and as the railroad opened the country, so the telegraph followed, is what is written in the Canadian Encyclopedia. In Huntsville, however, it appears the telegraph arrived before the train. Huntsville secured its first telegraph line in 1875 through the Montreal Telegraph Company lines. This was the first significant telegraph company in Canada. Lines were established between Toronto and Quebec City in 1847 under the leadership of Orrin Wood. By the end of the 1850s, they had 1,900 miles of line installed and 12,400 miles by 1870. This is the company that established an office in Huntsville. The first message from H.P. Dwight operator was received in 1875 by Dr. Howland and it read, Hurrah for Huntsville, the outpost of civilization in the north. New companies formed and takeovers were inevitable. Thus the great Northeastern Telegraph Company came to be. H.P. Dwight was now the president and the general manager and it's for whom the village of Dwight is named as he spent much time there. J.R. Reese was the local agent for the company. The earliest office in Huntsville was located on the south side of Main Street, near the bridge. After its destruction in the 1894 fire, a new office was located on the north side of Main, across from the Brunel Road intersection. World news was still being reported via telegraph to many places, so during the Boer War, reports of the siege of Ladysmith filtered through to the town. The story is told of J.R. Reese. Apparently his enthusiasm knew no bounds, so that when he received news through the telegraph that Ladysmith had been relieved, he stood outside his office and screamed the news until he had no voice left. We'll return to the written word. Popularity of the printed word spilled into and through the 17th century. Authors told their stories and scientists of the day printed their findings. Events happening in the world stirred up curiosity among people who only heard snippets of information. The first known newspaper was printed in 1605 by Abraham Verhoeven of Antwerp, the name translated as New Tidings. 
However, the earliest surviving copy is dated 1621. This passed a variety of information to anyone interested that could read. The first newspapers in Canada were published in the early 1750s in Nova Scotia and Quebec, followed in 1790s by Upper Canada. Known as gazettes, they were tightly controlled and monitored by the government, as well as being heavily subsidised. It was not until between 1800 and 1850 that independent newspapers were first established. It was during this time that printing presses became less expensive to buy and operate. Literacy rates increased as well as it became more profitable due to increasing revenue from advertising. In Huntsville, it was Dr. Howland who started the first newspaper called The Liberal in 1876, showing his political leanings. He sent the paper to Bracebridge for printing. But when Floyd Clearwater arrived in town the following year with his printing press from Whitby, where he'd been publishing a weekly newspaper, these two businessmen joined forces and so began the Forrester newspaper, with offices in the old Bettis block. Dr. Howland stayed with the Forrester until 1881. In Susan Pryke's book, Spirit and Resolve, she states, From this platform he was able to affect considerable influence in matters of local importance. In particular, he was able to change the attitude of the government to the needs of the free land grants. End quote. This episode occurred when those who had not registered their lands to the government's satisfaction were going to be penalised and either pay or forfeit their lands. The telegraph was still an important way to communicate. In fact, without it, small towns would hear very little from any distance until much later than the event. The term boilerplate emerged. This referred to columns of news sent by private telegraph companies. The Forrester newspaper often consisted of about 30% boilerplate. At this time, the paper was published every Friday, and for about $1.25 you could get home delivery. It was, as stated in the December 6, 1898 issue, that the Forrester was, quote, devoted to material interests of the settlers, latest news, current politics, literature, and miscellaneous matters, end quote. Of course, local news was of real interest. Who was getting married, who died, and who was visiting who? Every small community had its news. Advertising was also of great interest and was sold at reasonable prices. With the fire of 1894, the Forrester lost their offices, presses and all back issues, but within three days with the assistance of Bracebridge, they managed to put out a 13 by 9 issue that had all the information on the fire, the businesses lost, and even the amount of insurance coverage available. Floyd Clearwater carried on in the business of in the May Building, Main Street East. He was very active in the community and in politics as a liberal probably put a slant on government reports. He stayed with the Forester until 1899, when in the February 24th edition of the paper, he reported his departure by saying, quote, With this issue, I seize all connection with the Forester, a relationship which lasted nearly 22 years, end quote. Floyd Clearwater went on to become postmaster. We have to take a short break here, but I will be back with more on communication. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. 
This is Touching the Past with your host, Trisha Markle. Welcome back to Touching the Past, where we continue the story of the newspaper after Floyd Clearwater left. George Hutchison purchased the Forester that year. He'd been a sawmill owner in the Windermere area, opened a retail store in Huntsville, and had a construction company, and was now a newspaper owner. In 1901, George constructed an elegant two-story building of local brick at 40 Main Street, where he moved the Forester. Around this time, a young man from Wyoming, near Sarnia, married Harriet, one of George's daughters. This was Harmon E. Rice. He'd arrived in the area earlier to open a branch hardware store for Craddock Hardware of Oil Springs. However, Harmon became a reporter for the Berks Falls Arrow newspaper. Following his marriage into the Hutchison family, he was invited to join the Forester, and a partnership was formed. Known as H.E. for most of his life, he thrived in the business and became the biggest promoter of the paper and the town. With the arrival of George and H.E. to the newspaper scene, it was declared the Forester would become politically independent. With George Hutchison's retirement, H.E. took over as editor and publisher. H.E. Rice was a prominent man around town, serving on council for four years and mayor for 11. He was an acting member of the Canadian Weekly Newspaper Association, serving as president in 1942. Although busy, H.E. always seemed to find time for coffee and a chat with anyone who cared to drop by the Forrester offices around three in the afternoons. H.E.'s son Paul joined the staff in the 20s. Modernization came to the newspaper over the years with folding machines, new presses and renovations and additions to the building. No one is sure what caused someone to get particularly upset with the newspaper or one of the Rices, but in January of 1962, someone was angry enough to throw two Molotov cocktails through the window of Paul's office. Some charring occurred and paperwork on the desk was burned, but quick-thinking staff saved the day. Footprints were followed in the snow, but no one was ever caught. In 1966, Paul died, followed the next year by his father, H.E., who had lived to be 96, and grandson Peter took over. There have been many editions, editors of the Forester over the years, names some will recognize, Bud Graham, Art Barton, Carl McLennan, Jack Kervag, Hugh Claremont, Charles Lawrence, Skip McLean, Joan Carter, Garth Thomas, and Ev Van Duren. Peter died in 1992, and the fourth generation of the Rice family took over. Elizabeth Rice Aben followed in her great-grandfather's footsteps as editor and publisher. Modernization in the newspaper industry continued, and as some of the old presses were replaced, much of the old equipment was sent to Aurelia, where a printing museum was planned at the Stephen Leacock Museum. In 1995, the Forrester branched out and published The Weekender, and after purchasing Muskoka Publications of Bracebridge, added The Advance, and special publications The Vacation Guide and Summer and Winter Passports. Only the Forrester survives of these, although no longer with the Rice family. All copies of the Forrester from 1895 have been digitized, and these are available through Canadian Archives or through the Huntsville Library. Soon after the Forrester came to be, the telegraph arrived, telephone arrived in Huntsville. Bell Telephone had an office here in 1892, but could possibly have been here earlier, 
as there's mention of the village clerk paying a bill in 1889. Mr. J.R. Reese was the local agent, and the telephone was most likely in the telegraph office. It's well known that Alexander Graham Bell patented the first telephone in 1876, although it's been argued that Antonio Mucci or Elisha Gray, amongst others, should be credited with its invention. In fact, the telephone was probably the work of many people. Without the earlier structures of the telegraph, the telephone probably would not have developed so quickly. For residents of Huntsville, a call had had to be made from the office, and they had to be summoned to the office to receive an incoming call. A few people installed phones in their homes early on, but could only call within Huntsville. New and improved equipment came to town, and private long-distance calling came in 1905. There's not a lot of information on the local telephone system in town, but it's obvious that it became more popular. In 1936, the town allowed Bell to dig up Main Street to put their cables underground, so as all poles could be removed and allow for road expansion. The Bell had an office on Centre Street, and the exchange was on the High Street. Dave Johns has a record of a few telephone numbers listed in the 1940s. Hearns Hardware, 18. Dominion Hotel, 126. The Forester, 33. The Bayview, 260. And Waddell's, number 1. We've seen the telephone change from the 1970 wall battery operated to the rotary phone of the 40s to the push button of the 80s. From party lines where one chose to, if they were able to, if they chose to, they were able to listen in on neighbors. And now we have mobile and cell phones as everyday items. When telegraph was at its height, it needed an identifying address to a series, so a series of two call signs was developed. When radio came along, it also needed an identifying call sign. In Canada, all radio station call signs began with the letter C. It was 1957 when radio station came to Huntsville. But long before that, commercial radio got its start in Montreal with the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of Canada. In 1919, by 1922, there were 39 commercial radio stations in Canada. And by 1932, there were 77 broadcasting live music, debates, sports and plays, as well as bringing world news to households. Needless to say, that growth was matched by radio sales, as 52,000 were sold in Canada in 1928. Although no radio stations locally for many years, those old tube radios would pick up numerous stations from all over. My husband talks of his grandfather in the 50s using the car battery to pick up fire and brimstone religious shows from the southern US, or being able to park at Tower Hill, Port Sydney, and catch Wo-Wo from Wheeling, West Virginia. I know a favourite station of mine was WBZ out of Boston, as they had all the latest music. It was Lloyd G. Olin who in 1957 applied for an AM radio licence for Huntsville. In 1958, he applied to have the station wattage increased to cover the Muskoka-Paris Sound area. There's a story behind why the call sign would be C-car. American Bob Dean was hired to build and operate the station. For the station, he devised a plan to have so-called courtesy cars drive around the lakes, where there were numerous tourists. The operators were to conduct watercraft courses and broadcast them on the air. Because of the use of these cars, the call sign became C-car. 
Lloyd Olam was sales manager, Frank McElroy was commercial manager, and Nadine Mossbaugh, music director. Olive Diefenbaker, wife of the Prime Minister, was on hand for the grand opening, as she had once been a teacher in Huntsville. Her words were, I hope you will find in your new radio station one new way of communicating to others the unique nature of this country. Don Lau was mayor at the time and Lou Snyder's trio supplied music. The transmitter was out Brunel Road and the studio was in a building at the south entrance to town. CCAR was at one time an affiliate of the CBC. In 1970, the station moved its office downtown. In 1977, they changed the call sign to CFBK when Joe DeShane from London purchased the station. At 12 a.m. December 31, 1988, CFBK AM left the airways and became CFBK FM. In 2010, the signal was vastly increased as it became part of the Halliburton Broadcasting Group and became known as 105 Moose FM. There are many names associated with the radio station. The one that comes to mind first would be Garth Thomas, a man that seemed able to do it all, from calling lacrosse games live to being a close associate of Santa. Many local people worked for the station, Brian Thompson, Bruce Markle, and too many others to name. I even did Trisha from Flowtrans ads at one time. Hunters Bay Radio came on the air as an internet station in 2009. It was registered as a non-profit, locally owned radio station, and was eventually issued the historical callsign of CKAR. After much toing and froing with the CRTC, the Bay was able to convert to an FM station, adding studios in Gravenhurst in 2018. Arson knocked out the station in 2018, but it was quickly restored at lower power, but when the new transmitter came online that year, it was better than ever. Apart from McLean Hunter, later to become Kojiko, a local community television studio, Huntsville has not had its own television station. Then came the internet as a form of communication. Long time in the making, it started out as Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA, in the 60s. It's impossible to credit the invention to a single person, as it was work of dozens of pioneer scientists, programmers, and engineers. Long before the technology existed, Nikola Tesla had toyed with the idea of a world wireless system in the early 1900s. 1969 saw the first actual message delivered from one computer to another. Short and sweet, it read login, although only the first two letters actually appeared. Internet arrived in Huntsville around 1995-96, and anyone that logged in in the early days must remember the horrible noises associated with dial-up. Now the internet is part of our lives, with information being almost immediate with the new fiber optics. What will they think of next in our world of communication? This has been Touching the Past on Hunters Bay Radio. Join me next time for more local heritage.